and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and today we will bring the story of a brilliant mechanical engineer in his 20s named Max Olsen, who had a crazy idea of how to revolutionize container transportation on the ocean. As you all know, over the last decade or so, container vessels have become bigger and bigger to make the transport more cost-efficient. But Max, our guest on today's program, had a totally different idea. He set out to design small, remote-controlled speedboats that hydrofoil across the water. In other words, they don't sit completely in the water, but they basically fly across the water. And those boats would carry three standard-sized ocean containers from China to the US West Coast in less than five days. And that's much faster than the 15 days that the journey takes with a normal container ship. How Max came up with this crazy idea, how the prototype looks like, and if his idea has any chance of becoming a viable business, all of that and more is covered in this episode of The Logistics Tribe. Super fascinating. Today's show is hosted by Jonah McIntyre. Enjoy. Max, let's just go back in time. You and me are sitting on a, on a park bench and you're thinking of an idea uh, for a new business. At that time, we, we were sitting there and you said, hey, have you ever seen hydrofoiling like in the American Cup? And I said, no. And so then you started explaining it to me. Maybe you could just explain to everybody so we start with the right context. What is hydrofoiling and where might they have seen it? You know, a hydrofoil is a, a wing that operates underwater and is attached to a boat and it lifts the boat free of the water um, and reduces its drag um, and makes a very efficient, efficient and fast boat and something that gets used extensively in sailing it got uh, used for a number of years for passenger craft in the sort of 70s and 80s, but it's really just made a comeback in the last 10 years. And the last 10 years does make me feel a bit old. Um, but yes, yeah, the sort of way to make um, much faster, much more efficient boats. And, and when you say it makes uh, boats faster and efficient, so it, it, to, hopefully the people who are listening to this take a second and we'll go google hydrofoils but when you see a boat that begins hydrofoiling uh uh so let's start with sailboats which is at the time that was the only thing that i could picture in my mind when we were describing this uh a sailboat that hydrofoils it essentially is flying right it lifts out of the water yeah it's it's as close to flying as you can get without actually flying yeah yeah and to kind of kind of reinforce that you know the first thing that goes to your mind well if you're not a sailor, I suppose, the first thing that goes through your mind is, well, you know, a boat's going to go as fast as the wind. But that's not the case, right? No, these sailboats are going um, several times faster than the wind. Essentially, yeah, you, you make these boats so efficient that wind power can propel them at, at, yeah, several times the speed of the wind. But when we were talking about this, uh, I think the reason that we sat down on the park bench was, was not because you wanted to make sailboats, you wanted to make a container ship. So you wanted, you had an idea that a container ship could hydrofoil. You could take a container ship, have it go super fast and pull it up essentially out of the water. So it's skimming the water. I think you described it at the time of, imagine putting a jet engine on a container ship and instead of it just plowing through the water, it's sort of skimming the water as it hydrofoils. Yeah. I. Um... It sort of started um, with um, a frustration for me around importing batteries. I mean, we were at the time 
both living in New Zealand, Jonah. Um, in New Zealand, everything everything we have got here by a boat or by a plane. We were having huge issues at the company I was at importing um, like lithium batteries, like 16, uh, sorry, 18, 18, 650 cells. Essentially, there were two things going on. Oh, the, the, the reason for this, sorry, is that the, uh, the Galaxy Notes, you know, the phones were blowing up on planes and suddenly there was a huge crackdown on the shipping of lithium batteries. And yeah, so it was a huge issue. Um, and essentially there were two ways. Uh, I started talking to the suppliers and there were two ways you could get batteries into New Zealand. Um, one was, you know, waiting 10 weeks, putting them in a container, putting them in the in the belly space of a, of a container ship well out of direct sunlight where it's nice and temperature stable and shipping them as dangerous goods that way. And the other way was to put them in an email packet and lie and don't tell anyone that there were batteries in there and hope that nobody realized. But because um, the supply was limited, it was the sort of like this game of were you cool enough and were you good enough friends with the supplier that they would lie on your behalf um, and did they want to wear that risk for you and so yeah it became this quite weird quite weird game where you had to befriend the supplier for them to lie on your behalf to bring batteries in and sell them to you um which was quite quite a big shift (laughs) compared to what we were used to and for context for context of anyone you know on here who are listening it's not like you were a battery wholesaler right you were in another line of business and you simply wanted (laughs) batteries to run your your other product business which we can talk about later and so uh so having these options you had air and ocean ocean obviously much much slower uh as well uh, especially for new zealand in the new zealand context that is that's not a primary trade lane so that's not a that's not a laneway where you have the you know the boats departing every day in both directions so uh so how did you get from that to yeah i'm gonna build a a speedboat a I'm going to build a speedboat using technology that's sort of sort of known and known. I mean, one of the things I want to I want to talk about in a second is you mentioned hydrofoils have sort of been known for a while, and there were some there were some commercial hydrofoiling uh, vessels in the '70s or '80s, uh, but but no one who's listening to this podcast is going to have ridden on one of those. I think so. You know what what's the what's yeah, what was the key thing that made it possible then? Then people stopped, and and now you say, or you said at the time, hey, let's uh, let's build these jet, you know, jets on the water. Yeah, at, at the time, um, and I try to minimize this in my head, I think, but you know, it, the reality was that the America's Cup was on at the time, and the America's Cup is a battle of hydrofoiling yachts. Um, you know, with it's the it's the oldest sporting trophy in the world, I think. And you know, it was kind of this like moment of you know how efficient are these boats? Um, so what had happened is hydrofoils hydrofoils were were huge in the sixties, uh, seventies, and eighties, and they're as old as time. You know, so Alexander Graham Bell held the water speed record on a hydrofoil in like nineteen. 08 
Um, <laughs> pick so check that awesome. one as well, please. So yeah, like that's that's oh, it's a while ago. And then they made this big suit. It was sort of like this early, early, a whole bunch of old-timey inventors went and played around on hydrofoils, died, came back 60s, 70s into like military. And then Boeing made a hydrofoil that operates Hong Kong, Macau. Some of your listeners might have ridden on one of those. Oh, yeah. I, okay. I rode on them. Yeah. Like growing up in, I grew up, for, you know, spent four years in Hong Kong. And I remember the, the hydrofoils there. Um, but essentially the theory was, you know, we can build the hydrofoil. Um, the, you know, the hydrofoils themselves and the boats were like entirely aluminium. and made out of like giant either CNC cut or like folded plate aluminium hydrofoils. Um, the shapes they could produce of the foils themselves, or like the wing profiles were, you know, just like glorified rectangles. Um, and they did, you know, for the tools of the time, like my word, um, incredible designs that they pulled together. Um, but they were heavy, they weren't very efficient, and they sort of compensated by just, you know, well, let's go grab a gas turbine from a plane and put it on there, and we'll just, we'll just, if we just pour enough Jet A1 at it, um, the boat will, the boat will go. And and I think I think here it's it's probably because for many of the podcast listeners they don't they don't come from a heavy engineering background and it may, just to reiterate in case you haven't yet Googled what the heck is a hydrofoiling boat you know, you're talking about we say the wings I mean you talk we, it literally is when I picture these hydrofoiling boats it literally is a normal boat then it's got a, a kind of a a stilt a, a strut yeah a strut exactly a strut that goes into the water maybe at multiple points for stability. And then under the water, it's got these wings like an airplane. And you're describing the wing shape because the like in the airplanes, the, the flow dynamic around the wings must be extremely important for efficiency and lift and everything. You are essentially flying through water, uh, but with, I uh, presume, like much less drag because you don't have the hull uh, on the rough surface of the water dealing with the waves and everything, you've got this wing shape attached to a strut that's below that that choppy surface that's moving through uh, uh, through the water. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's actually a, that's an excellent description. Yeah, and yeah, the, the dynamics are exactly like a wing through the air, but because your water is a thousand times denser than the air, the wing is a thousand times smaller. So you get mm-hmm. away with a very small wing doing creating a lot of lift and yeah and it sits below the water and it makes yeah like a fast boat and efficient boat and you clear you know most of your drag on a boat at you know doing 35 knots plus uh 60 kilometers per hour you know at that speed at 60 kilometers per hour you get uh, most of your drag on the boat comes from um skin friction you know like the friction between the hull of the boat and the water so yeah you say you lift that boat clear of the water and suddenly it's got a lot less drag you just have this very small foil running beneath the water and a really um small sort of surface of influence between the water and, and the foil and the rest of the boat um and so yes yeah, sits up on stilts um that we call struts mm-hmm. okay so so let's let's sort of go back get let's get the trajectory here so this is uh what 2017 so we sit on this park bench 
And a couple of things that really struck me, and, and you know, one of the reasons I want to call out your sort of origin story here is for the for the three years afterwards, uh, four years now, um, after that, when people had asked me, oh, what's something interesting happening in supply chain? What's an interesting startup that I should take a look at? I brought your startup up. I mean, you, yours was the go-to name uh, for me. And so here are the reasons why, and, and then we'll, we'll move on. The first is the startup world is uh, chock-a-block full with uh, software attacking some space, which was previously done manually or partially by software. You know, that's that's sort of 99.9% of the the startups. When, when we sat down, you wanted to build a big boat and you didn't really know what you're going to do with the boat, right? Like that, that, that I found fascinating where you, you, uh, you sort of had this view of, well, I think I can build this boat. And if I could, wouldn't that be commercially interesting? But that was a question mark. Like, wouldn't that be commercially interesting? Right. And then, and then the second thing, and then the the second the second thing that was that was fascinating about this this potential startup is that even the hardware startups in supply chain tend to be RFID devices. Uh, they tend to be sortation devices in warehouses, material handling um, kit, or maybe self driving trucks. All of which are sort of small kit or small kits applied to a large you know a large device. This is more like the equivalent of building a new airplane or building an, an entirely new form of transport uh, with profound consequences for the supply chain space, which, which I also want to talk about in a second. So just to close off this origin story, when you decided to do it, what was the sequence of things you wanted to prove out between I have an idea and this will be a viable business? Like all good hardware startups, it started with a spreadsheet of you know how efficient does the boat have to be to split the difference between you know sea freight and air freight and that's where i was positioning the business was air freight too much regulation too much too much cost you know great for speed sea freight the wild west um, as i found out more and more as i sort of dug into the market of building these boats and you know regulation light and uh, and very low cost and you know what is the what is the sort of the bounds of the engineering problem that make this a viable alternative somewhere between those two options and you know for me I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer and i was like well there's the here's the bounds does a hydrofoil sit between them you know a hydrofoiling boat is something i could I could build um, and then from spreadsheet who do i know in the freight game jonah my next door neighbor so so maybe now if we could turn because most of the most of the logistics tribe uh listeners right they come from a logistics background and this is where i think this starts to get really fascinating so let's just play out let's play with the consequences for a second let's play out what it would look like uh your boat how many containers would it carry so we were talking about three 40 foot containers got it so three 40 foot containers on a on a boat that would be able to get, give give me some sort of transit time expectation from say china to to the u.s yeah so uh it's sort of like 45 knots you could get you know uh shanghai to 
LAX in, you know, it was like five days, just absolutely okay. shoot across the ocean. Because emissions is becoming quite important in the industry. The the intention of these were battery operated, right? No, initially it was it was diesel. Um, there was no way to get battery okay. uh, across that sort of distance. But if you're worried about emissions, um, don't put it on a plane, put it on a hydrofoiling boat. Got it. Oh, sorry, last point. Given that it's three containers, it's presumably a much smaller boat. That means it doesn't need to go to a major port like Long Beach, right? It can be unloaded at at potentially much, much smaller yeah, ports. Yeah, right? we, we were running, um, and we still are actually, and what we do at the moment is that you're, you run an, intra, an infrastructure light business. Um, so you're not reliant on you know big ports. We could use secondary ports and and the sort of like then the winner takes all structure that ports were sort of developing with you know bigger cranes, more wharf space to accept larger boats. We could make use of the smaller ports, uh, you know, right down to you know a, a remote jetty would be enough to load one of these little three container mm-hmm. ships. We don't need the depth. We don't need the wharf length. We don't need the big cranes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just. Yeah, it's 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 air freight on the water. For the audience, the people who are listening who come from logistics background, I'm hoping that lights are kind of going off in their mind now. This was the other reason, besides just the boldness of the vision of, hey, I'm going to build a business around this new, enormous piece of hardware, and I'll if it works, there's great commercial applications. If it doesn't work, of course, we won't do it. The other thing that I found super fascinating about your business, uh, Max, was that. The, the this would entirely disrupt and change the dynamics of ocean container shipping because ocean container shipping has been at this race to economy of scale where you build greater and greater uh, uh, capacity vessels uh, until they essentially until they totally max out the canal paths at, at like Panama or, or Suez. So you end up with super ports served by super boats, which are fighting each other in kind of a price war to consolidate the industry and then you come along and say <laughs> as a quite an outsider right say hey uh i think i'm gonna make a speedboat like <laughs> make a speedboat that can take three containers to any port and it'll do it uh at a fraction of air freight costs at a and at a transit time that's just a bit lar- uh, longer than than air freight very fascinating can you just uh, real quick, can you talk about how you would have, in your mind, how you were thinking about these would be deployed? Because you essentially were thinking swarms, right? You were thinking very large volumes of these boats. Yeah. Like, I think uh, the thing to dig into there is that a traditional non-hydrofoiling boat runs on, you know, what we'd call like a, a, a cube law where if you double the length of a boat, the volume of the boat goes up by two to the power of three, but the surface area of the boat, which is most of the drag, goes up by two to the power of two. And so Mm. the volume in the boat um, escapes the drag. And so inevitably the boats get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, Yeah, there's also some some crowing, you know, considerations in there, but, you know, just in sort of an energy in, energy out basis, really big displacement you know, when i say displacement non-hydrofoiling boats make sense from a fuel perspective hydrofoiling breaks that relationship if you double the weight you're carrying um you also double your drag so suddenly you don't have this mm-hmm. escape of you know volume and weight 
away from efficiency. And so small boats make equally as much sense as large boats. And then if we sort of cast our minds into the future and we think about the prospects of autonomous ships and then so crewing requirements no longer dictate the efficiency of boats or the uh, the economic efficiency of boats. And then we have the situation where very large swarms of boats performing point-to-point operations with relatively small payloads in a very efficient way on hydrofoils starts to look like this whole new way to move freight around the world. Mm-hmm. Uncrewed, autonomous, hydrofoiling little container ships, you know, three con- three containers or something, zipping around in point-to-point moves. So not not in a not in a traditional uh, container boats a path where it would try to call on multiple ports to load and unload in a in a kind of a rotational sequence your boats would be going essentially direct right you don't have a crew manning those three containers it's yeah a review station someplace that's manning a hundred of the boats in it remotely by watching them a- absolutely yeah you start with a you start with a crewed boat uh, a human is a fairly cheap computer um to get going yeah i, I believe Na- yeah I-, I believe nasa used to d- in the in the 50s, NASA used to describe uh, the the cheapest 150-pound mass-produced uh, computer uh, and robot was a human being. And yeah, so yeah, you start with a crude um, a crude system, and then um, so yeah, if you can if you can change the fuel in energy out relationship, and you can change the crew in service out relationship, suddenly you can build large small large swarms of small boats instead of doing hub and spoke. Uh, I believe was the term you were looking for, searching your mind yeah. for really digging deep um, and turning it into a point-to-point service, um, trying to cut down on times and create efficiencies you know, beyond just the hydrofoil, creating efficiencies and just taking things where they actually need to go instead of near where they need to go yeah seems and still seems like a great a great thing to do yeah i'm I'm getting hyped by it now so then so then that was 2017 in the intervening years you began to build out demonstration versions of the hardware that was necessary just for the sake of time can you identify one or two sort of key moments that for you in the as you were building out kind of first a prototype version then a larger prototype version etc Key, key moment, I, I came to you, Jonah, to talk me out of what I was about to do, uh, and you failed. Uh, in fact, you just encouraged me, <laughs> emboldened me uh, to carry on. Um, and so, yeah, I built. Which should be a lesson to, to anybody, right? I actually say this in all seriousness. Other people around you will, will encourage you to do stupid businesses really like that no i've had this i've had this experience where you go to people and say i'm thinking about starting the business and they're like, oh that's that's a, you should do that you should follow your dream that's a great idea and then you know when you start the business and you go back to them and say hey you know maybe be a customer and they're going ah yeah i don't think i really need that and you go well hey like <laughs> six months ago when i bought you lunch you said it was a great idea so, so you got convinced. So you got convinced to do it, and then what was the next big milestone? Uh, there's messiness in the middle, uh, but if we could just cut to, I raised a small, uh, a small seed round um, to go and build, you know, the first prototype, uh, which was at like a one tenth scale. It was this 
crazy, uh, crazy little boat, which we affectionately knew as Bearfish. It um, it was roughly uh, three and a half meters long. You know, it's one tenth scale would then make that thirty five meters long at full scale. Um, it was driven by electric motors, developed their own flight controller. You built a flight controller to stabilize it. It used a tandem a tandem foil setup, which is like you have two foils which are identical and they're directly in line. And then it balances a lot like a, a motorcycle or a bicycle um, where it sort of just you know steers itself to keep it upright. Um, it looked absolutely unreal right. on the water. It was incredible. Um, we scared a lot of locals out on the local harbors when we were out testing it. Um, and, it, and it totally worked and it worked exactly as we expected it to. And so that was sort of prototype. Yeah, for people listening, try to imagine you go out on you go out on your boat sailing someday and then a joyful uh, group, a pack of like young people come by with a three and a half meter long hydrofoiling remote control boat uh, that's going at presumably pretty fast, right? Uh, yeah, like a good a good clip, like 30, 30 plus knots, you know, so you're talking, you know, 50, 55 Ks an hour, um, which yeah. is fast on the water. You know, that doesn't feel that fast in your car, but something of sort of that size, it's remote controlled. Like, yeah, we used to, we used to, you know, joke about, you know, the punters, um, the punters being out in their fishing boats. Uh, and there'd be this sort of thing on the water that looked vaguely like a submarine, um, and then sort of stop by. And for some reason, for some reason they didn't think, hey, I should keep my distance from this thing. They thought, hey, I'll see how close I can get to this to see what it is. Um, and so we did take great pleasure in just absolutely launching it out of the water onto its hydrofoils. Um, very, what it's some what some might not consider to be a safe distance from these from these punters. Oh, um, I love it. We've grown. We have matured since. Yeah, it's a three and a half meter like hydrofoiling remote control boat going really fast. It must be really cool. So okay, so you got through you got through scale you got through the the one tenth scale and then what came next? Yep, uh, another scale model. So that was one tenth. Um, we went to one quarter. So it's a. Uh, um, so the one tenth scale was sort of 200 kilograms, three and a half meters. We went to, uh, we had a revisit. We used all the data we captured from that prototype, and said, you know, what's the what's the sensible way to build this boat? Um, so we went from a monohull boat to a um, to a small catamaran. Um, we built it at six meters long, um, one ton. Um, and changed the foil layout from a tandem layout to a canard layout. Um, maybe you've got some engineers in the mix here who would understand those things, but essentially a canard layout is a large foil near the aft of the boat and a smaller hydrofoil at the front that acts as the sort of stabilizer to the whole system, uh, which is a reasonably efficient way to, to build a hydrofoil um, whilst retaining um, stability. So we, you know, we sort of revisited, um, we learnt, took what we'd learnt, took the data and, and made a much larger prototype um, at, at this one quarter scale. Okay, so now you're really scaring your neighbors. Uh, you've got a yeah. one ton, you have a one ton, <laughs> you have a one ton six meter plus uh, remote control speedboat that you're zipping around in. And I, I think, cause you've got a pivot coming here 
what what was the moment when the pivot became started to become clear? So for people who are like listening in and thinking, "What do you mean a pivot?" Well, today you're not you you you're not still focused on container uh, transport. You're looking at uh, roll-on and passenger ferries. And so, uh, can you just describe how that shift in focus? Because it sounds like you got through two stages of pretty hard engineering. Yeah. So I think like there's a few things that happened. Um, one is that all of our prototypes were electric and we mm. fell in love with building electric hydrofoils. Um, mm-hmm. So on a technology front, we actually got very good at building these electric boats. And suddenly the thought of putting diesel on the boats seemed a lot less like what we should be doing. Two, I mean, the supply chain scene and international freight right now is very different than it was sort of nine months ago, 12 months ago when we were making this switch. So I, I excuse me, I will only describe it in the ways that it looked at the time. Um, Margins were very thin. Um, When we were talking to you know the customers that we would roll out with one of the huge overarching concerns was uh, like resilience of the network um and so to have a single boat operating on a thousand kilometer route running twice a day or sorry once a day was actually not substantially better so what we were realizing is that we needed several boats operating from day dot to create yeah. a service that people wanted. Um, the routes were long. The certification process was very hard. We had to burn diesel to get it done. There was a lot pointing towards a capital intensive project to go from our current prototype to our operational model. And there was a lot of unproven ground to cover. You'd be a capital intensive company in a capital intensive industry but you'd be against people who are capital capital heavy. You know, people who are either state-backed, like some of the, the Asian uh, uh, lines, or you would be against people like Maersk, who are, you know, a, a significant fraction of a country's economy uh, at their headquarters. Yeah, and, yeah it would absolutely be tough, right? immense. Absolutely. And, um, and the margins of that business were enough to make it work, but they weren't enough um, to necessarily as like a starting point um, to break in they just weren't they weren't there (laughs) yeah (laughs) the margins were just just too thin to make it all put together Um, and then yeah so occasionally I would uh, shake my fist at our initial conversation Jonah and say you know why 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 didn't you tell me this (laughs) why why in the world did did Jonah make it sound positive yeah. I believe in our conversation, my view was you can work out the commercials later. If you can if you can make such a boat, you can either sell it to those companies, you can start your own uh, shipping line, or uh, you can or you can you can license the design. But then again, I just go back to my earlier comment, never trust a, a bystander opinion. You know, bystanders are like, yeah, that would be really exciting. If you had have convinced me not to do it. You would have also been wrong. So either way, you were wrong and I was right. So yeah, and um, so we started looking at this. We'd obviously made huge inroads on the technology. 
we'd built our own flight controllers, we'd built our own hydrofoils. Like we'd, we were a small startup team laying up our own carbon fiber hydrofoils and building our own actuators and programming flight computers, um, building electrical systems, um, building battery packs and motors. And like we were pretty um, you know, across the board doing a lot of stuff, <laughs> um, fairly multi-talented. Yeah, so you'd built, I mean, what was interesting about your the moment of your pivot was it, as any good startup, it was not an abandonment of the entirety, right, what you'd been working on. You had sequentially validated hypotheses you had, for example, can we build such a boat, right? You had sequentially validated those things and you had established expertise and sort of resource and skill and intellectual property within your within your team. You just found a stronger business. So maybe tell us about what that business focus is right now. Right. So right now we're building Ropex ferries, car ferries, again, relatively small at 40 meters long, carrying 20 cars and 150 passengers across routes up to um, 200 kilometers in length. And yeah, that was the, that was the big change. Um, So what we realized is some of these Ropex routes have you know, running them with a hydrofoiling high-speed ferry is a good margin business. Um, mm. You can start with a single boat. We could start locally here in New Zealand, and we could reuse a lot of this technology that we'd been building and had gotten really good at building and turn it into something that was actually you know, far more consumer-focused, something that excited people, something that excited our employees. <laughs> And yeah, so it went from being like quite hard to sort of develop the business towards the market to being very easy. Things that were coming, you know, hard fought wins were becoming easy wins. Um, And essentially around this shift to Ropex Ferries, we started building the most incredible team. And for some reason, the thought of putting cars and passengers on an electric hydrofoil and it riding four meters above the waves on these long struts of stilts as you describe them, captures people's imaginations far more than a freight ship. Um, yeah. Is that yeah. offensive? <laughs> no, no, it's not offensive. So th- that, that's, that's the irony of the logistics industry is that it permeates and supports the entire economy, but it's uh, for all intents and purposes, it's ignored by everyone who uses it. And that's okay. Uh, you know, I, I ignore, for example, the plumbing in my house, the fact that it delivers me clean water on demand at, at the temperature I want it. That's a good thing. That was a, a problem that was solved by society a long time ago, and I don't have to think about it so I can go on to solve the next set of problems. And I think logistics is right at the cusp of that of most people don't think, the industry participants think about it, most people don't think about it. And you're not hiring logicians, you're hiring engineers, you're hiring commercial salespeople, they can get excited about a ferry that their friends and their family can ride on. You know, like you said, huge ferry, right? For You're talking about, a, you're, you're taking orders right now for 40 meter long ferries that are going to ride four meters above the water, above the waves, uh, and like zip across cool right i can i can understand how engineers get excited about that yeah just to kind of close things off maybe maybe talk about the state of your business right now you mentioned you had a great team tell us a little bit about that and then we can we can kind of close with from your perspective do you think that that future that container shipping side is that something that 
is sort of just ruled out for you? Is that something you think someone else will do, but it's it's sort of, uh, you know, someone else's mission? Is it just not the right time, but the engineering will eventually make it so? What's what's your perspective there? When I was starting this business, I was lusting after, you know, the engineers that made these America's Cup yachts. Mm-hmm. And then in the last sort of six months, we've been from, you know, gone from a company that lusted after such engineers to a company that hired them. So now we are a team of engineers who come from, you know, Emirates Team New Zealand, from American Magic, another syndicate, Oracle Racing, um, Virgin Hyperloop. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got people who have you know, built electric theories already. Um, we've got project manager from, you know, the Apple Watch. Um, we have this most like incredible team who all just absolutely driven to turn the vision into reality. We hired the uh, you know the first engineer at Wish, um, mm. who is atoning for his sins um, in uh, selling very low quality goods um, by building very high quality boats. Um, so that's like that's been a massive change in terms of will we be back to freight? Yeah, we're building these 40 meter hydrofoiling car ferries at the moment, um, and that's awesome. Um, and yeah, that's a 35 billion dollar plus market to to tackle for us. But eventually, the technology will become such that you know our original hypothesis around this freight market will become viable again as far as we're concerned at the moment we've got a lot of work to do in the ropex space um i think we can make it you know the most immense impact on providing you know high speed emissions free incredibly comfortable transport floating above the waves and so we're totally focused there right now yeah it's super exciting i have to say just to close off it's also personally super exciting to see uh how you've you've developed this potential business and the amazing things I think you're going to get up to in the rest of your career. So for people who are, who've been listening to this, they're probably thinking, oh, that, you know, this is a, a very much a mid to late career engineer. Do you mind me asking, how, how old are you? I'm 28 years old. I have thus far failed to have a real job outside of university. Um, so I left yeah. university and was at Halter building dairy cow collars left there and have since been running sea change it's amazing i appreciate you coming on i know i learned a lot the story is sort of only at the beginning there's a lot more to be said awesome thanks so much for having me jonah great to talk all right thanks very much bye-bye all right that was the logistics try podcast episode with max olson the ceo and founder of sea change i hope you enjoyed today's show if so, please subscribe to the Logistics Tribe podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Fergandrea. Until next time.